The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hello, and welcome to The Exchange with Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Swaha Pasnaik, Global Economics Editor of the Commentary Team, and my guest today is Agustin Carstens, the General Manager of the Bank for International Settlements. Agustin, welcome. Hello, Swaha. A pleasure to be with, with you today. Thank you for joining us, albeit virtually. Now, you joined the BIS, which is based in Basel, Switzerland, towards the end of 2017, if I remember correctly, after something like a seven-year stint as the head of the Mexican Central Bank. Yes. As a matter of fact, it was pretty much eight years because uh, it was seven years and 11 months, but yes. (laughs) Oh, just missed out on the anniversary. (laughs) From Mexico, from having been governor for uh, pretty much eight years, and uh, previous to that, I was Minister of Finance for three years, too. Yeah, great. Well, I mean, you're at the heart of what is going on in policymaking. The BIS, uh, for those of our listeners who may not be experts in the world of central banking, is basically described as the central bank for the world's central banks. And what a year it's been for your community Uh, I mean, it's been at the heart of all the fight against the pandemic crisis um, and the the economic impact of that. And we've seen something like $6 trillion of monetary policy stimulus announced in very short order to help the global economy cope with the coronavirus. Were you surprised, given your long years of experience in central banking, at which such a large amount of stimulus was announced and also how quickly some very radical measures were taken? Well, certainly if you would see a graph of all these uh, monetary stimulus that central banks have given through time, obviously the figure you just mentioned would very clearly stand out. But uh, therefore, it's very important to put it in context. I think what is unique of this crisis is the nature of it. And the fact that it derived uh, pretty much from a pandemic, which is not financially or economically generated, But in addition to the policies that were implemented as part of the strategy to uh, control the pandemic itself, which is uh, social distancing, that uh, implied uh, sudden stops in economic activity, in uh, basically the possibility of people going out to the stores and buying, it froze investment. And therefore, it generated a very rapid collapse in economic activity by huge, in a huge, huge dimension. Therefore, in this case, uh, what was of the essence was the speed and the amount of money that could be deployed rapidly. Uh, we all are familiar now with the concept that, uh, from a medical point of view, what was of the essence is to flatten the mortality rate and the contagion rate of COVID-19. In economic terms, what was of, of, of the essence was to try to flatten the curve of mortality of firms and also by limiting the amount of people who would lose their jobs and also for them to be able to, to preserve the capacity to serve their, their, their debt and to be able to consume. Therefore, uh, I mean, obviously, this is framed in a relatively short period of time. 
Uh, again, the availability of resources, immediate availability was of the essence because, for example, many small and medium-sized enterprises just had cash for seven or eight weeks. If they wouldn't have received an injection of resources through credit or different programs, uh, many of them would have died. So I think what, what is unique uh, in this respect uh, a, and I give a lot of credit to, to many of the advanced economy central banks and other central banks that implemented these uh, policies, is that they came up with a very precise diagnostic, diagnostic very quickly and that they managed to mobilize massive programs also very, very quickly. So, you know, I think, I think given the nature of the, the crisis, the quick and massive response was certainly appropriate. Right. And one of the things that risked exacerbating the crisis during the white heat of the turmoil in March was what was going on in financial markets, particularly. So um, we had intense market turmoil. It very unusually affected even the US government bond market, which is supposed to be the safest of safe havens. There was a working paper recently put out under the aegis of the BIS, which looked very, very interesting piece actually on the US dollar funding, so important to the health of the global financial system. What sort of issues do you think were revealed by the recent turmoil? And how do you think we'll have to address them once we are through this crisis period? Yes, well, I think many things came together at the same time and uh, generating the, almost the perfect storm in, in this type of markets. Uh, I think an important aspect uh, to all of this was the fact that uh, as part, I would say, of what in normal times makes uh, the treasury market very, very efficient and very liquid, is that there are huge operations in terms of arbitraging different prices. So we have the cash futures arbitrage. Uh, that cash future arbitrage is done mostly by hedge funds, and they depend hugely on very, very large amounts of leverage. So they, they, get, they engage in, in, in operations that traditionally are, very, are relatively low risk. Uh, when markets get gets dislocated, as uh, we saw this when the, when in, at the height of the, of, of the pandemic, of the impact of the pandemic, uh, markets uh, really uh, uh, observed a very erratic pricing and uh, that generated the spiral of margin calls. And that by itself uh, induced further uh, 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 corrections in the positioning of many of these players. And uh, so this generated huge changes in prices and it started to spread to other markets. Uh, it affected uh, the commercial, well also the commercial paper market was affected by credit risk considerations. And together with the volatility in the, in the, in the treasury bill market, it generated a pretty much a run against the money market funds, and that by itself again exacerbated volatility. This was combined with the fact that a, a supply of treasury bills had been increasing, and also 
because uh, the, the dealers, the, the primary dealers, had limited capacity to hold many of these securities. So given the combination of factors, it really was necessary uh, for uh, the Fed in this particular case, not only to provide liquidity, but also to acquire huge amounts of bonds and uh, basically take the pressure out in uh, bonds that at that particular moment was very dif difficult to be held by different intermediaries. Now, obviously, the, the intervention was very effective. It, it uh, established the market functioning quite appropriately. But yes, it's a huge wake-up call. I think one of the issues is that, uh, again, we need to look more carefully at leverage in the non-bank uh, financial sector or the financial markets. And also, uh, you know, for example, uh, the liquidity and uh, the stability of some money market funds. I think that this has been in the last, let's say, a little bit more than a decade. Uh, this is the second time that massive uh, central bank uh, intervention has needed to sort of provide services of lenders slash market makers of last resort. So this really calls for all the all our community to take another very good look into a potential regulation in these sectors as times come. And are there already perhaps from uh, what we saw some early learning points which could guide us to what sort of regulation may be needed that you are already starting to think about? Well, I mean, I think liquidity liquidity requirements for money market funds, I think, would be one that would be relatively obvious. Uh, and also, you know, uh, uh, we more than anything need to understand much better and have much better information, at least, on, on the amount of leverage that is, 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 is it out there in the markets. I mean, uh, we... Uh, given that this type of leverage is usually not uh, from systemically important institutions, uh, that has given us some degree of comfort. But the aggregate level in, among many financial intermediaries, when things do not go the way they're supposed to be, can generate a huge scramble for cash and can destabilize markets quite quickly. Therefore, we need to have a much better uh, metrics, much better uh, systems to control leverage at the aggregate level. Let's turn back to banks who have weathered this crisis rather well, not at least because, as you put it, governments have helped um, reduce the mortality of companies and not people, but we're talking about the companies, as you so elegantly put it. Are you concerned about what will happen? when that stimulus is unwound perhaps and the support is withdrawn about non-performing loans and the knock-on effects to banks. It's a little bit in the future, obviously, but. Yes, well, I think, I think that, that, that is a big concern. Uh, as a matter of fact, we can think that uh, we are just finishing, at least in advanced economies, uh, the liquidity stage of this episode. 
And uh, probably now we're going to enter into the solvency uh, stage of the episode. Uh, now, the fact that some firms will not make it uh, in a way have been, has been anticipated. Uh, and that's why also a, a major salient feature of this uh, crisis response has been the accompaniment of uh, monetary policy with fiscal policy and a lot of fiscal policy through guarantees and indemnities, uh, precisely because of the possibility that many non-performing loans will, will result. Uh, the, the, the shock itself also might uh, affect many sectors in a structural way, and that will need to be absorbed. Uh, so what we have seen with uh, good eyes is the fact that uh, banks around the world has, have pretty much uh, accumulated uh, important amounts of uh, provisioning. They have done a lot of provisioning against the uh, MPLs. And uh, uh, together with the buffers they had, uh, we feel that they are in good capacity to absorb the shocks. Now, as you very well know, uh, many authorities around the world are stress testing uh, 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 with far more intensity, stricter scenarios, uh, the different uh, financial institutions, and oftentimes this has come with the recommendation or the guidance that uh, capital should be preserved, and that has led to uh, suspensions of dividend payments and buybacks. So I think that, that, that this has been in the radar screen of the authorities. Many, firm, many banks by themselves have also preempted this circumstance and they by themselves they generated a lot of these reserves. So we feel that, 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 that the system uh, will have the strength to weather uh, this episode relatively well. We turn back to central banks, um, in fact, in my fiscal policy as well, because central banks are trying to keep borrowing costs down in the face of a lot of issuance. It's always easier to roll out stimulus than to withdraw it, and central bank balance sheets seem to just keep growing larger and larger with each successive economic downturn or crisis. How concerned are you about this issue? Well, you know, I mean, Again, I think in the short, short and medium term, the policy response has been quite adequate. I think that the policy response has been framed in the context of the mandates of the central banks, which is to pull surprise stability and also financial stability and engineer additional employment. As, as hopefully uh, uh, the, the policy response plus other actions of, of government, widely speaking, namely the pandemic is control. Uh, this should bring uh, renewed economic activity, more employment, and uh, sooner, hopefully rather than later, more inflationary pressures. Uh, given the framework that monetary policy has been conducted uh, in most central banks, uh, it is very clear that at some point, uh, hopefully the inflationary pressures will provide signals 
that uh, some restraint will be necessary. And uh, I think that that by itself will be a natural way uh, to start limiting the, the, the growth of some balance sheets. Uh, central banks will have to be very opportunistic about this. Uh, we saw, for example, that in, in the, the past years, there have been some episodes where the Fed managed to do this. Uh, uh, and uh, I would say that in addition, uh, central banks should look also into, we need to look more in, with more detail into further applying macroprudential policies because the, uh, some of the drawbacks that might uh, come with a very ample uh, provision of liquidity is that uh, markets can become probably uh, exuberant and at some point uh, financial stability risks might appear. I think that, for example, if you see the, the different interventions of different governors or presidents like, like uh, Jay Powell, they have, uh, they have uh, recommended prudence in terms of uh, the exuberance of the markets. Uh, so I think, I think that, that at some point, uh, the issue is how do you combine the need to provide stimulus with the need to look after financial stability. And an additional instrument is uh, macroprudential measures and the, uh, our community uh, is looking into that uh, with a keen interest. Right. And you have said in the past that it's always best to figure out where the exit is when you walk into the theatre rather than waiting until you need to use the exit. So um, can you talk a little bit more about exit strategies and whether talking about them right now in the middle of, you know, when the economy is in need of stimulus is helpful, unhelpful in, you know, general terms? Well, you know, uh, yes, I mean, this is a key point. Uh, I would say that there, there is a, a, a wide variety of practices here, and all of them can sort of coincide at the same time. <laughs> uh, we have seen in among many, I mean, one of the things is that central banks have implemented a wide variety of programs. Many of them have an exit strategy already built into them. So in some cases, it has been taken care of ex ante. Uh, they have, for example, a very clear tempor uh, temporariness. Uh, in other cases, uh, uh, well, this is more open-ended because uh, a lot of the policy action is contingent in, on, on what will happen into the future. Uh, of course, uh, it depends on how, how policies will become effective. And again, how the different macro variables uh, progress and how do they relate with the objectives of the central banks. Uh, one, one aspect where there is a little bit of a, I mean, you, you see different pressures at the, at the same time. First, you want a, as a central bank to provide some certainty about the type of support you're giving right now. And, that, and, and, and there, what is important is, for example, the forward guidance and, and to give a tranquility that accommodative financial conditions will be there for quite some time. 
But then other market segments and other people worry, well, but what will happen, you know, and, and as a matter of fact, you made me the question, uh, aren't you concerned about the size of the balance sheet? No. So we need to put the two things together. Yes, the forward guidance is there. Yes, there will be plenty of accommodation in for the time to come. Uh, therefore, I think this should give the results that are uh, looked after. Uh, but at the same time, uh, central banks are providing also the signal that when the right time will come, uh, they will try to rein in and reestablish something that is more prudent from, from, I would say, the aggregate point of view and the influence of the central banks on financial markets. I mean, these are extraordinary measures and, uh, and precisely they should be taken as such. They are extraordinary. They are not for all the time. Uh, therefore, it's good, as I say, it's good to know that the exit is there, but you have to walk towards the exit uh, when it's appropriate time. Right. And perhaps we've been used to seeing developed market central banks taking some of the unusual measures that you're referring to, notably quantitative easing in the round. We are now starting to see some emerging market central banks also do QE, as quantitative easing or asset purchases are called. Do these emerging market central banks run different risks, greater risks than their developed market counterparts by you know, following them down this road? Well, uh, I mean, uh, first of all, I think the fact that they can consider this type of policies is a tribute to the fact that for the last many years, they have really improved their credibility and uh, the way the, the, their, their track record in pursuing stability. Uh, now, at the same time, it has to be acknowledged that the degrees of freedom they have to implement such policies is not comparable to the US or the Euro system or the large advanced economy central banks. Uh, still, uh, they have some uh, external financing constraints. Uh, the exchange rate uh, plays a very important role. Uh, that can affect inflation. Therefore, they have, they have to be very, very prudent. It's good that they have some additional degrees of freedom, but certainly they cannot act as if they were uh, in the same uh, league as in, in advanced economy central bank. Going on from that point, one of the things that's always been a Rubicon that's never been crossed is primary financing, buying directly from a government that's issuing um, a couple, a very rare, rare couple are starting to hint that this might be considered. Um, how important is this Rubicon? Does it seem to you like just a thin under the wedge that we've already sort of chomped away through or um, are there more risks? The other follow-up question perhaps is also you talked just now about the credibility emerging market central banks have acquired with hard you know, effort. Is there a risk that governments will start taking them for granted, especially in some of them where there is a less track, long track record than in developed countries of valuing independence? Well, I mean, all these discussions and uh, all the actions that central banks have undertaken uh, 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 around this episode uh, have been 
coming out of the central banks themselves. Uh, it has been uh, decisions, they, they have been decisions taken by the conviction of central banks that such actions are adequate, uh, which is very different from, let's say, traditional fiscal dominance. In the fiscal dominance, basically the authority and the, basically the capacity of central banks to decide is eliminated. And uh, precisely another authority dominates the decision-making of the central bank. In these cases, the central banks have been under control. Uh, now, these again are not normal episodes. Uh, and if we go uh, to the beginning of our conversation, uh, when you asked me about the size and the speed of the deployment of, of liquidity, uh, in a way, that is what is happening in this case. Uh, to respond to the nature of this crisis, fiscal spending needed to be deployed very quickly uh, 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 by very large uh, amounts as percent, percentage of GDP. Now there are there are clear limits on on the finance on, on the capacity that the economy and the world economy, even in some cases, can provide that financing. Uh, and therefore, if uh, if if it were uh, tried to if, if it was tried to with, they try to get this financing uh, without the participation of the central bank, uh, the result would be to crowd out more private sector funding or might be far more volatility in the markets. So uh, to smooth the impact on uh, financial prices, on interest rates and so on, of this uh, very quickly ramp up of government expenditure is adequate for transitorily the central banks facilitating this financing. Uh, the key point here is that they are directly under control uh, it is, uh, there are again uh, actions that are related to the mandates of the central bank. In this case, is financial stability. And plus, there is also the fact that inflation is nowhere to be seen. Uh, therefore, I think that central banks can act. Uh, they have a window of opportunity to support uh, government financing uh, in this way. And, and therefore, but this key is that the governance is preserved. Central banks are under, under control. Second, the, uh, is clearly specified what is motivating this type of transactions. And that also will provide the temporariness of them. I guess one way in which the um, governance could be changed, and we go back to the fiscal dominance issue, is central banks are independent but are given generally their mandates by a political authority, and that's where the accountability also comes in. There were several central bank reviews by major central banks in the G7 already underway. I'm not sure this sort of change would come from the central bank itself, but do you see those reviews now producing a slightly different outcome? Or do you have um, any thoughts about whether governments will change the central bank's very narrow focus on inflation mandates in the coming years? Well, I mean, I, I, I think by and large, uh, central banks have, uh, have uh, performed very well. I think 
there is no question that what they have done uh, has been very productive for uh, mitigating many of these uh, many of these risks. Uh, I think central banks have enhanced the transparency. Uh, I think I think that also we are uh, leaving a very un I would say not not really un unusual but not that common. Uh, to see a very close coordination between fiscal and monetary policy. I think when there is conflict with governments is, is when the central bank want to, wants to go in one way and the authorities, the fiscal authorities want to go in another way. Uh, this hasn't happened. I think this is a very uh, fortunate episode in which there has been very close coordination between fiscal and monetary policies. And that has been pretty much uh, worldwide. So I, 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 certainly there, there is always a need to be sure that the mandate and the reach of the central banks is the adequate one, but they, I think results speak for themselves. And even, even though oftentimes there are certain things that can be tweaked here and there, by and large, I think what the, the, these frameworks have been quite, uh, quite adequate. Great. And let me ask you my last question then about the mandate of central banks, which is more focused on financial stability, uh, macroeconomic stability via inflation targeting. Recently, there's been a pressure on central banks, which are conducting QE operations, to be more green about the choices they make and that central banks care deeply about the climate change because there's a whole network for greening the financial system, which is set up with a slew of central banks and supervisors. However, when central banks are being asked to pile more and more and more onto their plate and do a lot more, there is also a risk of mission creep and you know, it coming back. How do you feel about the climate issue and perhaps the calls for central banks to green QE more? Well, I mean, I, I certainly believe that certain things in the margin could be done. And I would say many central banks are doing it. Uh, for example, uh, we're, we, we here at the BIS, uh, we are, as you mentioned at the beginning, the, the banker of many central banks, and uh, we help them in the management of their international reserves, and we have created a green bond fund, which basically is like a, an ETF for central banks, uh, where that is a fund that is dedicated to green bonds. And they, well, of course, there is a lot of appetite, and they are they are contributing in that way. Uh, this can be applied in other dimensions, but I think I think that it has to be done in such a way that a it doesn't distort or it doesn't distract the central banks from its own mandates, and uh, and that central banks do not, uh, as you say, uh, they don't take more than the than what they can really deliver. At the end of the day, uh, green financing, uh, well, basically how to improve uh, uh, our you, you know, climate and, and so on and so forth, de depends on a serious, serious, of con serious of considerations that are where the central banks really don't have much instruments to uh, have an incidence on those problems. Therefore, we have to be mindful. We have to support as much as we can. 
but certainly it shouldn't be the, 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 the key mandate or the key objective of the central bank. Augustine, time has flown really quickly and we have to wind up here, unfortunately. But thank you for sharing your thoughts with me and our audience on Reuters Breaking Views the Exchange. And um, hopefully see you not too distant future. Thank you to all of us for tuning in to this episode of The Exchange, which was produced by Freddie Joyner. If you enjoyed it, check out our website, breakingviews.com, where we have more podcasts as well as videos and commentary on business, finance and economics. For today, we'll thank Augustine and end here. Bye from London.